0: Well, hey there, it's Adam Schell, the pastor at Melbourne Heights, and welcome to this week's sermon podcast. We've got to start this week's podcast with an apology to you, our listeners. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been experiencing some technical difficulties and server issues that have kept us from being able to upload our podcast, and I apologize for that. I'm especially sorry because all of this happened right in the middle of a series of sermons I've been preaching on the book of Revelation, and I've heard from a few of you, and I know how much you've been looking forward to these sermons, and I apologize that we weren't able to give them to you in the timely fashion you've come to expect. So I'm sorry, but I am pleased to tell you that we have these technical difficulties, these server issues resolved, and we're able to start uploading those podcasts again. So today we're going to start playing a little bit of catch up. And today I'm going to share with you a sermon that I preached a couple of weeks ago out of the book of Revelation. And in this week's sermon, we are going to see what rage quitting monopoly has to do with the book of Revelation. So I encourage you to sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to this week's sermon. So over the last couple of weeks at Melbourne Heights, we have been working our way through the book of Revelation together. And over the last couple of weeks, I've been comparing the book of Revelation to the classic board game, Mousetrap. And I've been making the comparison between the book of Revelation and the classic board game, Mousetrap, because both of these things, the book of Revelation and the game of Mousetrap, can be more complicated than they need to be. So as we've been working our way through the book of Revelation together, we've been trying to simplify it. We've been trying to simplify the book of Revelation by stripping away some of the symbols and signs and scenery that happens inside of the book and focusing in on what the heart of the book of Revelation is. And at its heart, the book of Revelation is a message that Jesus wants his followers to hear. That's what the book of Revelation is. A message that Jesus wants his followers to hear. And last week we started talking about the first part of this message that Jesus wants us, as his followers, to hear. And the first part of that message is, no matter how bad things may look, God always wins. No matter how bad things may look, God always wins. But that's just the first part of the message that Jesus wants us to hear in the book of Revelation. So I want to spend the rest of our time together this morning talking about the next part of the message that Jesus wants us to hear. And to do that, I've brought along another board game. But this time I didn't just bring along a classic board game with me. This morning, I brought along the quintessential board game. I brought along the board game that everybody thinks about when they think about board games. So, of course, I'm talking about Monopoly. Monopoly is the quintessential board game. It's the game that everybody thinks about when they think about board games. And Monopoly, as we know it, has been around since the 1930s. So there are no telling how many games of Monopoly have been played over the last 80 years. But every time I've ever pulled this game out, I have always pictured the game playing out the same way. Every time I've ever pulled this game out, I've always pictured a scene like the one we're going to put up on the screen right now. Now just look at that screen. Look at everybody in that picture. They're smiling. They're happy, they're excited to be playing the game, they're cheering each other on, and they're just having a great time. And you know what? That's usually what the game of Monopoly looks like, right? Only the first time around the board, right? The first trip around the board, that's what everybody looks like. Everybody is excited to be playing the game, everybody's looking forward to seeing exactly how the game unfolds. Everybody thinks they're going to win when you first start playing Monopoly. So we laugh, we smile, we cheer each other on, and that's because the first trip around the board doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if somebody lands on Baltic Avenue or St. Charles Place. It doesn't matter if somebody's lucky enough to land on all four railroads and purchase them up the first trip around the board, because you're not going to win or lose the game of Monopoly in one trip around the board. But the game of Monopoly takes a horrible turn the longer you play it, right? Anybody who's ever played Monopoly knows that this is the truth. The longer you play the game, the worse it gets. And that's because if you remember how to play Monopoly, you remember how you win the game of Monopoly, right? You win the game of Monopoly by creating a complete Monopoly over everything on the board. That's why it's called Monopoly. And you do that by controlling everything on the board. And the only way to control everything on the board is to make sure everybody else goes bankrupt. So that game, that game that started out with everybody smiling and laughing and carrying on and having a great time where everybody was cheering each other on, it turns cutthroat pretty quickly. It gets vicious pretty quickly. And it's been my experience in my years of playing Monopoly that that usually happens when these little pieces right here get broken out. This little hotel and this little house As soon as the houses and as soon as the hotels start coming out in the the game of Monopoly, things start getting serious. They start getting serious because the first person that owns a group of properties and is able to build houses and then hotels on it, well, it means that they're in control of the game. Because at that point, they're able to start charging exuberant amount of rent so that they're starting to eat into all the pile of money that everybody else has put together. So the first person to build the house or to add on a property, they're usually in a great position to actually win the game of Monopoly. And that means that everybody else sitting around the table is playing catch-up. And when you're playing catch-up in the game of Monopoly, let's just say things start getting a little bit antsy around the table. If you're anything like me, when you're playing catch-up in the game of Monopoly, you got your little pile of money in front of you, and you start obsessively counting how much money you have in your pile. Like somehow, the more times you count your money, there's going to be more money that just magically appears inside of the pile. But that has never worked for me, unless I'm playing banker and then I cheat, which don't tell anybody. And that's not all. When you're feeling antsy at the game of Monopoly, you start doing all kinds of math in your head. You're like, uh-oh, I'm coming up to, to Boardwalk and Park Place. Ho- there's hotels on them. I'm going to lose the game if this happens. So I'm doing the math. And I'm like, okay, if I roll a five, I'm going to be okay. But if I roll a four, my little pile of money just went away. So I'm praying that, that when I roll the dice, the right number comes up for me. And we all do this when we play the game of Monopoly because we all know that when somebody else is in the lead, when somebody else is on the verge of winning, all it takes is one bad roll, and the game of Monopoly is over. We lose the game. And with all of that pressure that you start to feel when you're losing at the game, a game of Monopoly, someone almost always explodes The pressure mounts up, it becomes too much, and what started out as a fun evening of good old fashioned family fun, it ends up looking a little bit like this video clip we're going to show right now. 100 bucks. I have five bucks. You know what? I quit! What are you doing? I quit! You didn't win. Now we don't know where everything was. I quit. I'm getting out of here. I had to find a stage version because the things people say when they actually get upset aren't appropriate for church. But there's a technical term for what you just saw inside of this video. It is called rage quitting. And rage quitting happens whenever someone is losing at a game and they just can't handle it. So they quit. They give up. They walk away in a fit of anger. When the going gets tough, these people get going in the opposite direction altogether. But right now you're probably wondering what rage quitting and the game game of monopoly has to do with the book of Revelation. Well, I want to take a minute this morning and remind you of what the world was like when the book of Revelation was being written. I told you last week that the book of Revelation was written somewhere between 65 and 95 AD. And during this 30-year period of time, the Roman Empire was doing extremely well. These 30 years were part of a period of history called the Pax Romana, the Roman Peace. And it was essentially the golden era of Rome. The Roman Empire was in its heyday. Its borders stretched from the British Isles in the north down to the African desert in the south. Its borders stretched from the Atlantic Ocean in the west over to the Euphrates River in the east. And to the people of that day and time, it would have seemed like Rome was the world. And Rome wanted to keep it that way. Rome wanted to keep it that way. They had a large and well-trained army that defended their territories and worked to expand their borders. But they weren't just concerned with conquering more land. Rome also wanted to conquer individuals, their hearts and their minds. They wanted everybody inside of the world, inside of the Roman Empire, to think and act like a Roman. And again, we talked about this last week, but Rome had some messed up priorities. And one of the biggest errors in Roman thinking was the belief that the emperor of Rome was divine. And since the emperor thought that they were divine, they wanted to be treated like they were gods. They wanted to be worshiped like they were gods. They wanted to be revered like they were gods. They wanted to be honored and obeyed like they were gods. And for the people that worshiped the emperor, things went pretty well. Think of these people, the people who worshiped the emperor of Rome as your monopoly tycoons, okay? By worshiping the emperor of Rome, these are the people that got ahead In the game of life. They had the first crack to buy up boardwalk and park place, and then they were the first ones to get to start building hotels and developing that property so that they could charge a huge amount of rent along the way. And when they got done with building out park place and boardwalk, then they started scooping up things like Kentucky Avenue and Indiana Avenue and Illinois Avenue and built those properties out. And then it was on to Pennsylvania and North Carolina and Pacific Avenues. And all of those were being built out, and they were just getting so far ahead of the game. And before you knew it, the people who were worshipping the emperor of Rome, they were in control of everything. But not everybody worshipped the emperor of Rome. I mean, let's be honest here. Worshipping an emperor of Rome doesn't jive well with our faith. We believe that God is God, and only God is God, so Christians that were living during this period of time, they refused to worship the emperor of Rome. And they were treated the exact opposite way of the people that were worshipping the emperor. Christians had their property confiscated, and it was given to those who were worshipping the emperor instead. Christians got kicked out of their homes and it was given to people that were worshipping the emperor instead. And believe it or not, that's not some veiled reference to the game of of Monopoly. Those things were actually, literally happening. Christians were having their land confiscated so that it could be sold to those who were worshipping the emperor. Christians were being kicked out of their homes and exiled out of the entire empire altogether because they were refusing to worship the emperor of Rome. And in the worst case scenarios... Christians were even being killed for refusing to worship the emperor of Rome. So, think back to that monopoly illustration for just a minute. And if you were a Christian living in the Roman Empire when John was writing the book of Revelation, you would have felt like you were playing a game of monopoly where your opponent was in control of everything. They owned every property, they owned every railroad, they even bought the utilities. And you, as a follower of Jesus, you had nothing. You had no chance. You were losing the game. And there was no way that you were going to come back for victory. So there were plenty of people who were following Jesus in those days who just quit the game. They flipped the board over. They walked away. but They didn't walk away from a game of monopoly. They walked away from their faith. And there's a technical term for this as well. The technical term for this is apostasy. And apostasy is what happens when someone completely deserts or walks away from their faith. And there seems to be a lot of this going on in the seven churches that John writes the book of Revelation to. There are a lot of people who are just giving up on their faith. A lot of people that are just walking away from the church. A lot of people flipping over the game board And deserting Jesus. And John, John understands why they're doing it. While all of this is going on, while all of this is going on, while people that worship the emperor of Rome are getting ahead and are getting way ahead in the game, John's sitting over in this corner of the board right here. We'll put the picture up on the screen so that you can see it. John is sitting in jail. He has gone to jail, gone directly to jail. He has not passed go. He has not collected $200. John was really, literally, in prison. John had been exiled to a small little island called Petnus, And he was serving time there because of his faith. So John gets it. He understands why people are giving up on their faith because he's been imprisoned for his faith. But John wants to remind Jesus' followers of something before they completely give up. John wanted to remind Jesus' followers that giving up on God is a much bigger deal than giving up on a game of Monopoly. And it's a much bigger deal because John knows that no matter how bad things may look, no matter how many hotels somebody else has been able to build on Boardwalk and Park Place, John knows that God is always going to win. John knows that God will always win, but if you give up on God, you'll always lose. This is what John knows. He knows that God always wins, and if you give up on God, then you're always going to lose. So in the book of Revelation, John tries to warn us about what happens to the losers, And if you'll go ahead and grab your Bible, whether you've got a printed one like mine, an app on your phone, and turn to Revelation chapter 16, I'm going to show you some of what John has to say about what happens to the people who give up on God. So Revelation chapter 16, we'll start reading together in verse 1. This is what John writes. He says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple say to the seven angels, Go. Go and pour out the seven bowls of God's anger on the earth. That sounds kind of scary, right? The angel says, go and pour out the seven bowls of God's anger on the earth. God's about to pour out his anger on the earth. We're living on the earth, right? Does this mean that we're in trouble? We need to watch out that these bowls of anger are about to be poured out. Well, in the next verse, we're going to see who's going to experience God's anger. So let's read Revelation 16, verse 2. So it says, So the first angel poured his bowl on the earth, and a nasty and terrible sore appeared on the people who had the beast's mark and worshipped its image. All right, now remember last week I told you that the beast here is the emperor of Rome. So as John says this, John is specifically talking about What happens to people who are worshipping the emperor of Rome instead of worshipping God? Those are the ones who are experiencing God's anger that the seven bowls are being poured out on. So let's keep reading together and see what happens next. We'll pick back up in verse 3. That's what John writes. The second angel poured his bowl into the sea, and the sea turned into blood, and the blood like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl into the river, and springs of water, and they turned into blood. Then I heard the angel of the water say, You are just, holy one, who is and was, because you have given these judgments. They poured out the bowl, they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar say, Yes, Lord God Almighty, your judgments are true and just. So in these verses, again, we hear about these horrible things happening as the anger of God is being poured out. But we're told who the anger of God is poured out on. And in these verses, it's those who have been persecuting followers of Jesus, the ones who have literally been killing Christians, shedding the blood of Christians, are now being forced to drink. The symbolic blood will lead to death instead. Let's keep going into verse 8, where John writes, The fourth angel poured his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to burn people with fire. The people were burned by intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. But they didn't change their hearts and lives and give glory to him. The fifth angel poured his bowl over the beast's throne and darkness covered its kingdom. People bit their tongues because of their pain and they cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and sores. But they didn't turn away from what they had done. So in these few verses, the anger of God is poured out on people who are cursing God. And this is actually something that happened when the Roman Empire was forcing Christians to apostatize, to give up their faith. Rome would force Christians at the point of a sword or with the threat of death to give up on their faith And they would require as a sign that these people had stopped following God that they would curse God. So we see it again. The people that are experiencing the wrath of God, the anger of God, those who have given up on God. So in these verses, John's trying to make things clear to us. He wants it to be clear to us and clear to the people in the churches that he was writing to. He wanted everyone that follows Jesus to know that even though it may look like the world is winning, that's not always going to be the case. God will always win. So don't give up on God. God will always win. So don't give up on God. Now for a lot of us that are sitting in the room This morning, we want to act like we don't need to read that message that's up on the screen. We want to act like this message is something that we don't need to hear. We want to pretend that there is no way that we would ever even consider giving up on our faith. But We've never had somebody threatening our life because of our faith. Here's the truth. You may have never reached a point in your life where you have been ready to give up on Jesus but you have probably had a moment or two at some point in your life when you've re- been ready to give up on the church. I've been there. I've been there. I've had moments when I've been ready to give up on the church. And there was one point when I was halfway through my seminary uh, career, halfway through earning the degree that would make me qualified to be a pastor, that I was ready to walk away from ministry altogether. I had been—I I resigned from my, tre- my previous church position, three years earlier, and I had spent the, the three that three years doing everything that I could to find another job inside of a church. Over the course of those three years, I sent out dozens of resumes. It seemed like any time that I heard about a church that had an opening, my resume went in the mail or in the email to get to them. And I interviewed at least a dozen times at some of these churches, but I never heard back from any of them one church in particular I still remember went down there, interviewed, had a great time talking with them they said hey we'll call you, we'll let you know one way or the other it's been 15 years I'm starting to think they went in another direction so after three years of searching for another church I felt like the church had given up on me I was ready to give up on the church too I was ready to quit seminary, give up on the dream, the calling that I felt God had given me of serving his church. But just a couple of weeks before I made that decision official, by not returning to seminary for a spring semester, God showed me why you never quit on God. God showed me when I received a phone call from a gentleman named Bob Markham. And Bob was calling on behalf of a little church that I had never heard of in a town that I couldn't find, even if you gave me a map. And he told me that that church wanted me to come and fill their pulpit for them one Sunday morning. Well, long story made short, six months later, I became the pastor of that church. And here I am almost 12 years later into my full-time ministerial career, and I can tell you that I'm glad I didn't walk away from the church. I'm glad I didn't give up on God's calling for my life because I've had the chance to minister to hundreds of people over the last 12 years. And I've seen countless people have their lives changed as they have grown closer to God during that time period. But none of that would have happened if I had flipped board over and walked away. And right now, with everything that we're going through as a church, as we're trying to finalize the sale of this property and to relocate into another place. This may be a time when you're having that feeling, thinking about walking away. You may be looking at that proverbial monopoly board, figuring that there is no way to win. But God always wins. God always wins. So don't give up on God. That's part of the message that Jesus has wanted all of his followers to hear from the time that John wrote this down 1,900 years ago right up till today. It's the second part of the message that Jesus has for us. Don't give up on God. Don't give up on God. the next week, we're going to talk about what happens when we don't give up on God when we persevere, when we stick to it, when we see it through. We're going to see what happens when God wins. And we're going to see what that means for those of us who have continued to follow him all along the way. So I hope you'll come back and be a part of that, hear that message next week. But for right now, I just want to pray for you. Let's pray together. God, you know right now that we are facing an uncertain time at Melbourne Heights. This is a time when we can look at the game board that's been placed in front of us and feel like we're just not winning right now. And it may even feel overwhelming to us, like there's no way that we could possibly come back and find a way to win the game. But God, it doesn't matter if we can't win, because you always win. You always win, God. There are no odds that are insurmountable for you. You always win. So God, encourage us. Encourage us. Fill our spirit with hope that you always win so that we don't give up on you. God, I believe that there are great blessings in store for this church. That there are countless lives that you are still wanting us to reach. People that you want us to minister to. Souls that you want us to be a part of Savior. God, right now it's hard to see that. It's hard to see beyond the hotels and the houses built up around us. But remind us, O God, that you are always in control, that you always win, and that you've got something big in store for us. We pray it in your Son's name. Amen well hey there it's Adam again and thank you for listening to this week's sermon podcast I hope that you found this week's message encouraging and inspiring and I hope that you've heard those words clearly don't give up don't give up no matter how bad things may seem God is always in charge God is always in control and God is always going to win and God is at work in your life right now Now, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, we're playing a little bit of catch-up this week. So we're actually going to be dropping another episode tomorrow. And in tomorrow's episode, we're going to be finishing up this sermon series inside of the book of Revelation. And we're going to talk about some of the famous imagery that we associate with heaven. And we're going to look beyond the pearly gates and see what else John is trying to tell us in the conclusion of the book of Revelation. So I hope that you'll tune back in tomorrow when our next episode drops. And as always, I want to encourage you to subscribe if you haven't done it yet. That way, when our latest episode drops, it goes right into your favorite podcasting app. So I want you to know that I'm praying for you this week. I hope that you can feel God at work and know that God is always in charge. God is always going to win. And we'll see you back here tomorrow for our next sermon.